Well, good morning, church family. You all are the, the brave ones, the bold ones, getting up early and climbing up this hill for our sunrise service. It's nice to be able to do this every now and again, at least once a year, uh, to be able to come up here and, and worship the Lord on our property, overlooking the city that he has called us to be in, the city that he has called us to minister in, and to, uh, to sing songs of praise, to worship him through prayer, and to hear his, his word preached as the sun rises up and chases away the darkness. So I'm glad we get to do this. And we're going to be thinking about an aspect of the atonement this morning. Uh, so yes, this is going to be a doctrinal sermon. And so I hope you've had at least one cup of coffee. I'm working on my second right now. I'm glad I did. It's cold up here this morning. Two tea bags. That works. That works. But, uh, you know, we can't get away from doctrine as Christians. We can't be the type of people who simply have feel-good messages about the different situations of life. These aren't therapy sessions, although we are ministered when the Word is, is preached and we worship through the Word. But even the resurrection, uh, you know, this is Easter morning, this is Resurrection Sunday. So to speak about the resurrection is even to consider doctrine. Yes, it is a historical fact. A literal Jesus literally died, he was literally buried, and he literally rose on a Sunday roughly 2,000 years ago. But it also concerns doctrine as well. And doctrine is more than what we just believe. I know, but I have to wash my back. My brother John has a story of a turkey attacking him. So if, if a turkey rushes up on me, just let me know. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you. <laughs> they might. So anyways, the Apostle Paul, he encourages pastors especially and Christians in general to watch our lives and doctrine closely in 1 Timothy 4.16. For the Apostle, doctrine certainly includes truth affirmations about God, you know, things like scripture, things like the uh, topic of Jesus, you know, who he is, his deity, his uh, personhood, and all other sorts of individual topics. But it is far more comprehensive and life-transforming than we tend to assume. Doctrine is entire Christian world and life view. It is entire Christian world and life view. It is the entirety of the gospel message, both in its specific teachings and in its implications for personal, family, church, and social life. It is taking up the cross in all of its fullness. So a word, doctrine is learning to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Essentially, Paul could have said, Watch your life by watching your doctrine closely. And so we're going to consider doctrine this early morning, but I hope that will end up being helpful and encouraging for us. So we're going to read together just one verse. If you have your Bible or you have an app, it's really windy out here. I don't know how I'm going to keep my page open even. Um, we're just going to read one verse this morning, so it will be very short. But it's, a, it's an important verse. There's a lot going on in it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be able to get more detailed with this verse in about a year or so, two years, however long it takes us to get to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. But I'm going to try to keep it short this morning. So we'll read the verse and we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Get there without passing it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and just verse... 45. So the word of the Lord says, 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living spirit. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, to you be glory. And we thank you for your holy word. The depth of it is sufficient for us to know how to live a life of godliness and holiness. It is sufficient and it is the only source by which we may know how it is that mankind is saved. And so we ask, sovereign Lord, that you would grant to us understanding of your holy word, of gospel truths, as we stand out here this morning and we get to observe you and your sovereign power through nation, through nature, I mean, causing the, from our perspective, causing the, what looks like the sun to rise and to chase away the darkness. We pray that you would supernaturally as well cause the light of your sun then to rise in our hearts, uh, chasing away the evil that remains there and to unite us all the more to your son. We thank you for uniting us to him. We thank you for that mystical union that we have with Christ. The, the righteousness that is his has become ours and it is his righteousness, his cross that we know causes us to be accepted before you. We give you all glory and honor. May you be glorified this morning and, and always in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, Beanie's going back on. It being Resurrection Sunday today, we are especially, of course, thinking of those truths associated with Christ's resurrection, and there's no better place to think about that than from the 15th chapter of the letter to the Corinthians. You, you could call that chapter the resurrection chapter, even. And what I wanted to meditate on, what I want to focus on early this morning, for just a little bit of time, is, is part of the reason as to why the resurrection is so important. And why the resurrection is so central to our lives as Christians. I mean, it can't be overstated that the resurrection is important, right? It is, it is essential. The Apostle Paul says that we were raised, that he was raised for our justification in Romans 4.25. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain. So what are we doing out here at 6.30 in the morning in 45 degree weather if Christ wasn't raised? There was no resurrection, right? Well, the reason the resurrection is so important is because it testifies to the work that Christ accomplished. It's the proof that Christ succeeded in his work of making atonement, that he succeeded in doing what was required to redeem people from the curse of the law. And so with the resurrection in view, we are made also then to think of the life and the death of Christ that precedes his resurrection. But what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're only scratching the surface this morning, is that part of what the apostles point in teaching on the resurrection is in contrast to, or is in contrast between Jesus and Adam. Why would he do that? What does that have to do with the atonement? That's what we're thinking about this morning. Now, later this morning in the main service, Pastor Nick is going to go into more detail about the atonement of Jesus and a specific aspect of it, but with our short time now, I want us to focus on a part of the atonement that we would call the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience contrasted then with what we would call the passive obedience of Christ, and I want to be clear here, there's not two atoning works of Jesus, it's one work of atonement, his work is a complete unit uh, the Reformed understanding, which I say is the correct understanding, is that Christ's 
passive obedience and his active obedience both refer to the whole of Christ's work. The distinction highlights different aspects, not different periods, of Christ's work in paying the penalty for sin, which would be the passive aspect, and then fulfilling the precepts of the law, which would be his active, the active aspect, which is the active obedience. And I want for us to think about this in a covenantal context. The scriptures want us to, actually. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, and a helpful way for, for us really to get this, to understand this, is to grasp it in the context of these two federal heads. Uh, the word federal in theology simply is another name for covenant, and by head, we simply mean representative. So if you, if you put that all together, we're wanting to think of in light of this, this framework that Scripture is setting up in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, it's set up in the mind of two covenantal representatives. These two federal heads represent the rest of mankind. And so we're thinking here of how we should understand Christ's atoning work in light of covenants, specifically federal heads. So then, the Bible connects two drastically different scenes to explain why God had to become man to redeem sinners. One scene is in a beautiful garden. And we see it in that garden, a perfect specimen of humankind, a man created in righteousness, eating the delicious fruit of a tree. The other scene is set on a hill so ugly that it's known as the place of the skull, Golgotha. A wreck of a man is there, battered and disfigured from torture, hangs there on a dead tree, a cross, gasping for his last agonizing breath. The first man is Adam. The last or the second man is the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45. The word of God reveals that God became man to become this second Adam, the second man, the last Adam, and for a very important reason. It's absolutely vital, first off, it's absolutely vital to understand that what the Bible speaks of both as historic figures, real men who really lived, who walked and breathed and acted in time and space and in flesh and in blood, they are representatives of the human race. It's unthinkable to regard that first Adam as a kind of mythological symbol and yet affirm the reality of Jesus. Although it's popular today to deny certain parts of the Bible, some will deny certain aspects of the morality that the Bible clearly expounds, saying something about how, how modern we are now and how our sensibilities have moved beyond what this ancient book says. That's, that's absolutely foolish and wrong. But that's not the sort of denial that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of those who want to explain away the miracles and even some sections of narratives as fiction, as mythologized story. Uh, many have attempted to do this uh, with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, especially, even denying the historicity of Adam, even perhaps even just planting little seeds of doubt about it. A popular Bible teacher, Andy Stanley, did that recently. And you, we cannot do this. And they think, when people do it, they think that they're helping people by doing that, helping people to believe because these are harder to understand areas of Scripture. But the reality is it doesn't help at all. And what it really does is it undermines and it rejects the gospel. Because when you deny the first Adam, you end up compromising the person and the work of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The two are inseparable. I mean, what could you, what could 1 Corinthians 15.45 mean if the first Adam is just a myth, 
it would totally destroy what the Apostle Paul is wanting to teach. Genesis 3 records how the first Adam sinned against God. And Romans 5 reminds us that the punishment he brought upon the entire race was death, since we were all descendants of Adam, Romans 5.12. Because I know you're already familiar with this, but Adam's actions brought death. His disobedience upon there in the garden brought death upon the whole human race. It brought condemnation. Why? Why did Adam's work there? They go, I wasn't there. You weren't there, right? None of us are that old. But what the Bible is teaching us is that we were there in Adam. He was a federal. He was our federal head. He was a representative. He was in covenant with God in the garden. Properly speaking, we would call it the theology a covenant, the covenant of works. He had a, a job to fulfill. There's the covenant language that's there present in the garden. It was essentially, you know, don't do this and live. The don't do this was do not eat from the garden that is in the middle of the tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On a positive end, he was told to be fruitful and multiply. He was told to take dominion, to work and to serve, to essentially be like a vice regent there in the garden, to represent God, to minister there in the garden. The garden essentially is this holy temple that Adam was to protect. And he had one command to not do something. Those were the, the terms of the covenant. And his actions in the garden represented us all and how God would then relate to us. And so we know that Adam as was disobedient, but he wasn't simply disobedient for himself. He was disobedient as a federal head. And scripture also reveals that Jesus Christ, the God-man, was the last Adam. Romans 5.12-19 to 19 is a wonderful section. We don't have the time this morning to go and read that. I know we want pancakes. But there in that section, it says that that Adam, the first Adam, was a pattern of the one to come. There's a parallel between Adam and Christ. And it's also seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where that reads, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So all that are in Adam die, that's everybody. All that are in Christ will be made alive, that's, that's not everybody. Christ's identity as the last Adam is explicit in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. We read 45 this morning already. So you see, we'll deal with these doctors again in a few months when we get there, many months. Um, but, but note, okay, Jesus is the last Adam, which also explains why he's the second man. As the man from heaven, Jesus alone was suitable to replace the first. And so he is a federal head as well. The first Adam was one. The last Adam must be one also. And the covenant that Jesus was in is, is properly called the covenant of redemption. It's a, in Latin, the pactum salutis. It is this pact for salvation between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to redeem a people. And so it, it's controversial to say this, but listen to what I mean by it. In a very real sense, you are saved by works. Not your works, but you're saved by Christ's works. His obedience is what makes us all saved. He's our federal head who earned obedience, who earned blessing. He, he lived obedience. He didn't earn that. He lived obedience. He earned the reward of redeeming sinners, a purchased people for himself. And the final outcome for all men and women 
is determined by the representative deeds of these two men. Paul's very theme in, in Romans 5 is that there are only two men from the perspective of God's justice. God demands perfection. But with our human nature being fallen in, because, in sin because of Adam, we humans are unable to meet this requirement. In other words, we can never save ourselves. Again, in the garden, Adam was forbidden to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he was disobedient. And because he disobeyed, he was to die. Genesis 2, 16-17. Death was not the natural destiny for Adam. It's not the natural destiny for anybody. But it's the it's punishment for Adam's disobedience against his creator, and we all share in Adam's guilt. We fell in Adam because he was representing us all. Pastor Sam Waldron notes this, contrasting the two federal heads. He says, Christ being the last Adam clarifies the nature of his saving work on the cross, which consisted of total obedience to his father. In other words, the saving work of Christ consists of obedience like that, which was required of the first Adam. But Christ's obedience wasn't simply to refrain from eating of the the fruit of a tree in a garden, right? Instead, Christ's obedience meant living under the law. It meant fulfilling the law without sinning in any way, without missing the mark in any way, as well as suffering and dying on the cross. Christ had to take on the form of a man and physically die, Philippians 2.8. And then being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Again, Pastor Nick will deal with more of that in just a moment, the passive aspect. But we need to be sure that we understand this contrast between the two covenantal heads. Christ's work as the representative obedience of the second Adam was both active and passive. To be the last Adam, Jesus had to do what Adam failed to do. Fulfill the required obedience and then also live a a sinless life of perfection, both of which Christ fulfilled. This is his active obedience. Think about it. What did Adam give us as he represented us? He gave us a sin. He gave us the guilt of his sin, the penalty therein that was due. And then he compound, and then it's compounded by our own sin on top of it, right? We all sin ourselves. We don't need any help, as it were, uh, because we're already fallen out and we go astray. We're from the womb. We are created in uh, wickedness. We stand condemned before God because of Adam's rep- representation of us. But Adam wasn't the final word. Thank the Lord. Neither did God expect us to make up for Adam's mistake for ourselves. We couldn't. Thankfully, there was another Adam in covenant with God to represent others. Christ came not to merely restore us to what we were before Adam's fall. He didn't just restore us to a place of innocence. You ever wonder why in God's divine plan, why didn't he just send Christ at, you know, however old he was, like on, on Good Friday, and then to go as a, as a lamb? To be that, um, that atone, atonement uh, sacrifice there on the cross. Why didn't he just come and that very day get sacrificed and be done? Well, that would simply put us back to the original state as where we were in Adam. That would maybe pay for our sin, but it wouldn't be good enough. Adam, when he was created in his righteousness and goodness, had the potential to fall away. Had the potential then to, to go astray and to rebel against God. But Christ restored us to something better than what we were in Adam. As the last Adam, Christ restores what was lost and guarantees that we'll never lose it again. He came and he lived a life of righteousness. 
He obtained righteousness. Do you understand? The moment that you were saved, that very moment when the Holy Spirit came to you and made you alive in Christ, you were what's called declared righteous. You're justified. You're just as justified that very moment as you are 50 years down the road of your sanctification. We do get, we do sanctify, we do become sanctified, we do become more holy progressively and from a human standpoint. But the righteousness that we have that declares us justified before God is based on Christ's perfect righteousness. It can't change. It can't get any better. That's why it's so important that he's our covenant head. He's our federal head. His righteousness declares that our sins are paid for and that his righteousness is now our righteousness. So in summary, those who are in Christ will get back what they lost in Adam. But more accurately, we'll get back better than what we were lost. Because Christ is a better, better federal head. As John Calvin comments, Adam by his fall ruined himself and those that were his because he drew them all along with himself into the same ruin. Christ came to restore our nature from ruin and raise it up to a better condition than ever. And friends, the reason Christ can do this is because he is the last Adam, the federal head whom God appointed in his mercy to stand in for us so we will become the glorified saints that God wanted us to be. So let's rejoice in him. Let's rejoice in him always. Let's rejoice in Christ and rest in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your gospel, for what it declares. Lord, we know that we, are, we were in sin and unable to save ourselves. So thank you for sending your only begotten son and for giving to us faith for making us alive in Christ, us who were by nature children of, a, of wrath, you made alive, and you have blessed us so richly in your beloved Son, giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place in him. Let us not forget that, Lord. Let us rejoice always, knowing that Christ's works stand in the place of ours, and so we claim and depend upon and we rest in his works. His yoke is, is light and easy, God. We are so grateful to you for that his works have saved us and that we don't have to depend upon our works. To you be glory and all praise. May your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, we're going to sing one more song together. I think your music didn't blow away, so that's, that's good.